Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The enduring popularity of the poem reflects, I think, our enduring obsession with the end of the world, our fascination with the idea of all things coming to a close. It's interesting, that line of Yeats is probably the most famous line from the poem, the one you're most likely to recognize, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. It turns out that line was quoted more in the first half of 2016 than it had been in the 30 years previously. People started feeling like things were falling apart, that the center was not holding, and our obsession, our fascination, our fear about the end, about things falling apart, was suddenly at an all-time high. Now, because of the fact that whenever we tell our stories about apocalypse, about the end of the world, we turn on the the television and and we see um, disease destroying the world, zombies destroying the world, nuclear apocalypse, choose whatever end fascinates you the most. We see that and we see the way that religious people are depicted. The, the craziness, really. Right? Suddenly something bad happens to the world and the Christians go out on the streets and start going, ah, the end of the world, judgment is coming. And the last thing in the world we want to do is be those people. So we avoid talking about stuff like this. And we don't talk about the end of the world very much. But what do you do when the Bible does? What do you do when the Bible talks about this stuff? Well, the Bible talks about it. We kind of have to do so too. The thing is, the world around us is obsessed with this idea. The world is fearful. And if Christians have something to say about the end of the world, maybe we should be saying it. Maybe people would be able to hear and Peter does more in the words than we, that we just read than say, uh, the end is near. He actually gives us a way of surviving the end of the world. He gives us a strategy for surviving the end of the world. Now, I don't know where your tastes run, but, but when I watch end of the world movies, the ones I like are the ones focused on survival. Right? Because probably most of you people at the end of the world, you'll, you'll, you know, die quickly, but I will survive. <laughs> Me and, and my hearty tribe of, of followers, we will somehow endure in the future. And so when you get obsessed with that stuff, you think about how you're going to do it. I hate to confess to things like this, but a few years ago on the Discovery Channel, they created this show called Doomsday Preppers. Yeah, some of you have seen this. I became obsessed with this. I watched it, these people in, in you know, suburban uh, Phoenix preparing for the end of the world, and you're thinking, you you got to move. There's no way Phoenix is going to last once the power goes out. Come on. But I became fascinated, and I thought to myself as I watched, okay, these crazy people have to meet somewhere. So I went on the Internet, and I found the forum where all the people talk about this stuff. And so for a while, I was just obsessed with this idea of how people think they will survive the end of the world, and what that will look like, what their strategies are. Because there's something revealing about this. I know it, it, it's like a hyperbolic situation, kind of an exaggerated scenario, but sometimes the way that we tell ourselves 
we will survive in extreme situations says something about how we think we ought to be living our ordinary lives. Right? What we think about the end of the world, in other words, reveals something about our nature. It reveals something about our nature. And I would say it reveals a flaw in our nature. The end of the world, as an idea, focuses you on the things that really matter. Things that are really important. It turns out TV shows aren't one of those things. When the power goes out, when the world goes crazy, you won't be reading a lot of books. You won't be uh, living the life of the mind. You'll be thinking about, you know, how do we get the power back on? You'll be thinking about how do we, you know, make civilization work again? The stuff that matters will suddenly come into focus. And I think that's why we're obsessed with it. It's a mirror. The idea of the end of the world is a mirror in which we see reflected an idea of how we ought to live. It makes us reflect on who we are, what we are, what's really important, what's really true, and what isn't. The thing is, most of the stories we tell about the end of the world, they have a certain strategy built into them, an idea of how human beings ought to live in order to survive. And it's not civilized society. It's not the way that we live now. We've got to change our civilized behavior if we want to survive when the chips are down at the end of the world. Like most of these stories see us as we are right now as people who are soft and lazy. Like people who've, who've become detached from what really matters. Now we have to become hard and disciplined. At the end of the world, we've got to be focused, disciplined. We were spoiled before. When people, after the end of the world, after the zombie apocalypse or Ebola or whatever, look back, they see themselves, their old lives, they were self-indulgent. They were concerned about things that didn't matter. They were spoiled then, but now we have to make tough choices. Now we have to do things we never would have done before. The main thing is we cannot live according to the morality of civilized society. The Judeo-Christian ideas of right and wrong, those too are a product of our comfort, our being spoiled. And you can't live that way any longer. That made you weak. Now, people who cling to those things are naive. It's always interesting. Anytime somebody in your group of survivors decides to be altruistic, to be welcoming to other people, to try to be the way we used to be, you know well, that person's going to get killed. Right? Because the moment that you extend like, like the open arm of welcome to someone, they're going to stab you in the back. That's just obvious. That's the lesson that we're meant to learn from all these stories. In order to survive as human beings, we have to rediscover what Jack London called the law of the club and fang. In other words, the, the sort of natural order of things that, that through our comforts we've become removed from. We change, but the world hasn't changed. The world has always been rough and, and, and brutal, and primitive. And the end of the world teaches us that we too must be rough and brutal and primitive in order to survive. Our survival strategy makes a virtue of selfishness, in other words. Right? The people who do the right thing in these scenarios are the people who act according to their own self-interests. Our end of the world stories, they have a shared survival strategy and it reveals this about human nature that we want to put ourselves first. You think about 
the strategy. I'll give you the strategy. You can write this down just in case something terrible happens after we leave here. You've got to survive at the end of the world. This is how the world would suggest that you do it. Number one, you need to adopt a mindset of fear. A mindset of fear. You can't see the world the way that you saw it before. Instead, you need to be suspicious of things that you used to take for granted. Because in the old days, you weren't paying attention to the real threats. Now, you need to be fearful, anxious, maybe even a little hysterical would be appropriate in some cases. Because you need a sense of urgency. Like it matters. It matters what we do in this instance. We have to get this right. We need to be afraid so that we can do the right thing. Secondly, once we've got that mindset of fear, we need to learn to be suspicious of others and keep an eye out for the warning signs. Because people are bad. And if you give them the chance, they will do bad things to you. Every person you meet is a potential adversary. They're against you. You can't let your guard down. You can't be too trusting. Third, you need to be careful who you let into your home. This should be obvious, but but sometimes it's not. The people you trust, it really matters that you keep that circle very small. Don't be open to strangers. Keep Keep it small. Keep it secure. Restrict your hospitality to a trusted few. Number four, stockpile your resources. If your basement isn't full of water and food and and stackable gold and silver coins, you're not ready. Stockpile your resources and, and never waste them. Don't lavish them on others because you've got only so much. You've got to hold on to it if you're going to survive. And finally, and this kind of sums up the mentality, do whatever it takes to survive. Things you never would have done before, do what it takes to survive. Anything is justified in order to live. Don't let petty morality get in the way of survival. Now, if this is how we think we would survive in this ultimate situation, if these are the ways that as human beings we would endure It tells us some things. First of all, if we accept this, then most of us believe that that morality is a luxury. We believe, as we've been told, that that right and wrong are like social constructs. And it's fine to behave morally in an environment where everyone has sort of agreed we're all going to try to be good. But once that agreement disappears, then all bets are off. And don't be the last person who's still clinging to right and wrong. It also tells us that the most important thing to us is physical survival. The idea that that whatever you have to do in order to live is justified. No matter what wrong you have to perpetrate, what lie you have to tell, if it lets you live another day, it's justified. Physical survival is what matters most to us. And also, implied in this, if it doesn't matter how you reach that goal, then clearly we aren't people who believe there will be any kind of final justice. Because the only way that you can act however you have to act, regardless of right or wrong, is if you believe there will be no reckoning at the end. That survival is all that matters, and any way you do it is okay. The only way you can lose is to die. That's the kind of world our end of the world stories tell us about. Paul hasn't seen our movies, though. Peter hasn't seen our movies. He hasn't 
watched our films, read our books about the end of the world, and when He gives His strategy for surviving the end, it is entirely the opposite of the story that we tell. It reveals something. The Bible's survival plan reveals the flaw in our thinking. That there's something we don't understand about the end that has led us to believe the way you live in the end is something entirely different than what it really is. And Peter's vision of life at the end is surprising. When you think about the Christian on the street corner holding up the sign saying, the end is near, judgment is coming, that's such a doom and gloom, hellfire and brimstone mentality. And yet the things that Peter says you should do aren't like that at all. His idea of the apocalypse is is surprisingly optimistic and joyful. Positive. Instead of fear, instead of a mindset of anxiety, Peter says, first of all, adopt a mindset of self-control and sober-mindedness. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. Ordinarily, it is our fear, it is our anxiety that drives us to our knees. Yet Peter is saying, don't go to your knees in fear, go in hope. See the end for what it is. Be sober-minded, be self-controlled, be disciplined. Not anxious, not fearful. Don't let your anxiety dictate your behavior. but Rather, let your behavior be dictated by your hope. Second, he says, keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Now we tell ourselves we should be suspicious of others. We should be wary. We should be looking for the warning signs. But Peter says, no, you should keep loving one another. You should keep on loving one another. Speaking to a continuing state. Like you you love and now love more. Love excessively. Continue in that love. Do it earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Don't look for faults in others. This is interesting because I think a lot of times as believers, we can be highly attuned to the faults of others and for what seem to us to be good reasons. To be conscious of of where other people fall short and of their sin. Now, Peter certainly isn't trying to give us carte blanche. He's not trying to say, hey, just be as bad as you want to be. But he is saying that in the presence of people who fall short, we ought to seek to love them in such a way that their sins are covered by love. That's an entirely different way of seeing one another. It's not fault finding. It's not measuring each other up and saying, well, well, how Christian are they really? Are these people really very reformed? (laughs) Not at all. Instead, loving them as they are, faults and all, to cover those sins. That's how Peter says we ought to be. And extending from that, far from barring strangers from our homes, thirdly, Peter says, be generous in your hospitality. Show hospitality, he says, without grumbling. Because he knows it's hard sometimes to open your life. Sometimes, 
we find ourselves connected with people who are just like us and we click immediately and we just think, ah, we're going to be friends forever. And sometimes God brings into our community people that really don't belong there. People who aren't like us, who see things entirely different. And they're wrong on theology, they're wrong on politics, they're wrong on sports, they're wrong on everything. And yet, we should show hospitality to them without grumbling. God has brought them into our orbit to love them. And this is how we love them, by opening our lives to them, without second-guessing, without reservation. And fourthly, he says you should use your gifts to serve others. Don't stockpile what you have. Don't store it all in the basement. Instead, whatever gift you've been given, you should use that gift to serve. You should use it to serve. Don't be a hoarder. Be a person who, who doesn't have anything left at the end of the day because you've given what you were given in order to serve others. Use your gifts to serve. And finally, rather than doing anything it takes to survive, Peter says, do everything for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. He compares us to good stewards of God's very grace. He acknowledges that the grace that God dispenses is varied. The gifts that God has given are different. As a result, different ones among us have different strengths, different abilities, different concerns, different levels of compassion and sensitivity. And seeing that, he calls all of us to be good stewards of what God has given us. The grace he's given you, you ought to use it. You ought to use it well. You ought to study to use it in ways that build up the people around you. Your words should be this way. You should be a good steward of your words. Whoever speaks, Peter says, should speak as one who speaks the oracles of God, the, the logia of God, the words of God. Let your speech be the speech of God. Speak the word of God into the lives of others. And also... Your deeds should be for the glory of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We pour ourselves out for one another in service as God gives us the strength. So why do we do that? Why should we speak the word of God and do the deeds of God? Because we want everything, in everything, for God to be glorified. Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you can survive the end of the world Peter's way, then the end of the world isn't what you think it is. If this strategy actually works, then the world isn't what we think it is. We look at our world and we see a place of scarcity. We see there's not enough for everybody, which means it's important that you get yours. There won't be enough to go around, so you've got to get your air mask on first. right? We tell ourselves altruistically, once, once I have what I need, then out of my abundance, I can serve others. Peter says, you don't live in a world of scarcity. You live in a world of abundance. You have a father who owns everything. Who owns everything? 
when uh, I was preparing for ordination, my father was asking me about the, the PCA. He wasn't familiar with the denomination. He wasn't sure how it worked. And so he was asking, well, does the, does the church pay for the church building or is that something that the denomination does? And I said, well, we actually have a wealthy benefactor who pays all the bills. He said, really? He said, yeah, we have a guy who pays all the checks. He provides everything that we need. He meets the rent. He provided a building for us. He pays the salaries. He does all of it. My dad's really excited. He's thinking he's going to change denominations. And eventually, he probes me about this guy, wondering, is it like a Texas oil man? Is it some sort of technology billionaire? And I said, no, no, it's he's a rancher. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And then my dad says, oh, you're joking with me. And I said, no, I'm not. He really does. He really does provide for us. This world is abundant. It's a world that God made. A good God made this good creation in order to provide. It's not a place of scarcity. We only see it that way. And seeing it that way changes the way we act in it. This world isn't governed by the law of club and fang. It is governed by the law of God. It's not what we think it is. And if the world isn't what we think it is, maybe we're not what we think we are either. And our purpose is different than we've imagined it. Maybe to survive physically is not only beyond our power, but is not our purpose at all. Well, we tell ourselves anything you do in order to live is justified. Maybe there's something higher than that. Maybe the intent of all we do should be to glorify God in life, in death, to glorify God. Which means, finally, that the end of the world reveals the chief end of man. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. And it's interesting, the word he's using for end is telos. Telos, which means end, but it also means goal or purpose. So that in philosophy, when we talk about the purpose of things, the meaning in things, we're talking about teleology, like telosology. We're studying the telos, the goal, the end of all things. It's not always true, but in this case it is, that the range of meaning in the Greek is reflected in the English. Because we use this word end in the same way. Right? Sometimes when we talk about the end, we're talking about the end, like the time it all comes to a stop. But sometimes when we talk about the end, we're talking about the purpose. When we talk about, for example, uh, do the ends justify the means? We're not talking about the end of time. We're talking about the goal. Does the goal justify the way that we get there, in other words? So we have this same idea, and it's the reason why, in the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and you find the question, what is the chief end of man? It's not talking about the end of the world. It's talking about the purpose of human beings. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When Peter says the end is at hand, he has both of these ideas in mind. The end of all things, the end times, so to speak, and also the purpose of all things, the fulfillment 
of all things, the goal of all things being reached. Because for Peter, the first coming of Christ, it marked the beginning of the end in both senses. Like other New Testament authors, Peter thought he was living in the last days. Now we tend to think, because we were, were influenced by um, like a relatively recent interpretation of the Bible, to think of the end times as something in the future. But that's something that happens sometime in, in the far future. Or maybe tomorrow, who knows? But the New Testament author says, no, it's now. It's now. We're living in the last days. These are the last days. These are the end times. And why did they think that? Like, what had changed? What had happened in their lifetimes that had changed the world forever? Jesus. Jesus had happened. The Son of God had taken on flesh. He had entered in to Satan's parasitic kingdom. He'd found that strong man in his kingdom and he bound him. And he started plundering souls. Taking people from Satan's dominion and building his own kingdom. That's what was going on. That was the final age of human history. Jesus had come and he had set off this final epic before the ultimate end. And Christ coming again in the real second coming, not the one Yates talked about, in the real second coming, that would mark the consummation of that final age where it all came together. God's plan in history finally reached its end in the fullest sense. So when Peter says the end as at hand, he means both the end and the goal. We've reached it. We've reached the end and we've reached the goal. It is now revealed. The mystery of the past has now been revealed. And the end and the goal are the same. Christ, who comes to judge the living and the dead and to see His people glorified. So what does the end mean to us? You think about the end of the world, what do you think about? Does the end of the world spell fear? Anxiety? Anger? Resentment? You see things falling apart all around you? You say the center cannot hold and you get mad? Or you despair? You think about your own life that way? When you think about the end of your life, do you see it as something that comes to an end with so much unfulfilled? So many things you were meant to do? So much greatness that you were meant to manifest and it didn't happen and it's a disappointment, a frustration. Our ideas about how to live in the end of the world are really just exaggerated and clarified ideas of how we think maybe we ought to be living in the world today. Maybe we should be more ruthless. Maybe we should take care of ourselves a little bit more. Maybe we should be more aggressive in taking advantage. Maybe we're too nice. Maybe we're just too forgiving. But if your hope is in Jesus Christ, then the way that you should live now is not in fear. It's in hope. We do grieve the reality of death, but we do not fear it. We grieve the reality of judgment to come, and yet we long for it. We speak with the words of God and we serve with the strength of God and we strive in our own small way to bring glory to Him because to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.